All anxiety is separation anxiety. It's really true. And I add on to that, and it's mostly separation from yourself. So when you feel separate from yourself and you can't connect with yourself through your body, through whatever, you're going to start feeling anxious. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the rucker paw. Now we eating from state to state. We scrape the plate. I put my eggs in the basket. Took a leap of faith. I took a chance. Now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests. Now let's bring Matt. Welcome, everyone, to an all-new episode of the Top 1% Globally Ranked Podcast, Decoding Success, where we are joined by Dr. Russ Kennedy for a conversation that encapsulates a step-by-step for healing anxiety. As always, this is your host, Matt Labrie, and I am taking this quick moment to express my gratitude for you showing up here for yourself today. You could be doing anything else in this world, but today you are choosing to dive in to learn, to explore, to expand your horizons. And for that, I am giving you your kudos and saying thank you for choosing us and this conversation. Now in this episode, you will learn the following from Dr. Russ. Number one, how trauma, no matter when it may have taken place in your life, can still be impacting you today. Number two, how to start to identify where trauma and its energy, its emotion is stored within your body physically and furthermore, what to do with that. Number three, why anxiety may have seemed to come out of left field. Maybe it came out of nowhere in your life. Just letting you know that's something that I felt had happened to me. So you're not alone. There are answers within this. Number four, how to connect your current present self with the inner child, the young version of yourself that still exists within you today and may have been the culprit of that trauma. Number five, a mindset shift. If you find yourself looking at yourself any different, maybe less than for any mental health battle, struggle or moments to overcome, there is a mindset shift within this episode. And of course, a ton more in between all of this. But a quick note, you're here for a reason. Embrace that. If you weren't here for a reason, you would have made a different choice today. You would not be listening to this podcast. Know that you're here for a reason and someone else in your life may need you to be the reason they even discover this episode, this podcast, this message, the impact within it. So on that note, share this episode with the people you love. Share this on social. And if you do so, make sure that you tag us, Dr. Russ and myself, of course, so we can say thank you. On that note, we bring to you Dr. Russ Kennedy and a conversation on healing anxiety. I'm curious, you know, how are you? Like, what's going on in your life? I know you were just giving me a little bit about what you got going on today. How are you otherwise? You know, up and down. Okay. You know, up and down these days. I mean, I'm looking at a a major publisher wanting to buy my book. The book's been out for three years, Mm. right? So now a major publisher wants to take it and publish it, you know, kind of across a broad platform. And it's a little destabilizing Mm. for me because I'm used to, you know, in my own little world, you know, playing. I mean, the book sold 60,000 copies as a self-published. So congratulations. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of setting records as far as that kind of stuff goes. But it's interesting to see when things, when you go to, you know, what's the saying? It's like another level, another devil, Mm. right? So there's always something. So you think, oh, when I get to this place, it'll be great. When I get on Joe Rogan, this will be great. When I do this, (laughs) it's like, and then you actually achieve these things, you know, like, and it's, it is great. Like it is great. It's not a feeling that I'm used to, Mm. you know, and I'm used, and I think a lot of my life, I think a lot of my youth, I spent just sort of overcoming challenges. My dad was schizophrenic. I was fairly slight when I was younger. So I started working out hard when I was, you know, in my late teens put about 25 pounds of muscle on me and nobody challenged me at that point. So it's like, so I've learned these kind of, I don't want to say artificial, but these ways of kind of coping and accomplishing that may not be coming from this really authentic, grounded place in me and more of a place of having to look good or not being weak, you know, like the typical male thing. It's like, I'm going to make myself look so strong that I that I just can deny my vulnerability. So I think I'm kind of in that phase right now, man. It's like, there's points in the day where I'm at the gym and I'm playing my, you know, my motivational songs and I'm feeling awesome. And there's other points. It's like, this is so different than my life as a medical doctor. Mm. So yeah, it's just, it's a real change. Another level, another devil. I think that's a, a great saying for me right now. What are your go-to motivational songs in the gym? What's on the playlist? There's one, oh, 
what's it? Uh, hell, yeah. Make make this the best night of your life. This will be the best damn night of your life. I think Hell Yeah or Hell Yay or something like that. Revolution, I think, is the name of the band. I played it like so many times. You think I know the song? <laughs> uh, that's a big thing. And there's also what I'll do in in there is I'm on Spotify, so I will play like motivational speeches mm. on there as well, and just to get myself kind of jazzed up and that kind of thing. And it's amazing how much dopamine you can create just from music and just from motivational speeches, which I find kind of artificial. You know, it's like, you can do it. You know, don't get in your way. Nothing can stop you. <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's a bit schmaltzy when mm-hmm. you really listen to it. It has that effect of motivating you or directing you on a course. Yeah. I have a few songs that I can put on. And, you know, it's interesting when it comes to music for me personally, it really depends on the mood. But there are just a few songs that I know will pull on the heartstrings sometimes. Others that will definitely get me amped up and going. So music is definitely uh, an interesting thing. But I actually want to move backwards very quickly because before I forget this, you were talking about the ups and downs, the roller coaster of life, right? I'm really curious to know if you ever feel like you want a break from that. You know, I know you're a doctor, so that could potentially be interpreted as maybe, you know, knock on wood that it's not the case, but like suicidal ideation where, you know, like you ever feel like you just want off the roller coaster for just a little bit. Like you just want the coaster to coast. Does that ever happen to you? Yeah, I used to a lot. I mean, lately what I've been telling my friends is I don't have to work as hard as I used to Mm. in a way, in a way. So the analogy that I draw is, you know, the space shuttle when it goes up and after it hits kind of like the stratosphere, the two rocket boosters kind of fall away, Mm. right? So it needed those rocket boosters to break the gravity or break the hold that the earth has on us. But after that, there's a certain amount of credibility that you've gained or a certain amount of momentum that you've gained that allows you to just keep going. And sometimes I don't think we really realize that we've actually broken through. Mm. And if you come from an attitude of you've got to work hard, you've got to accomplish, when you actually do accomplish, you don't give yourself the credit. And I think there is this feeling like you still haven't made it yet. Like there's such a thing as making it, right? Like, you know, I could have millions of dollars and beyond, you know, all the famous things. And still, you know, I would think have this thing like, oh, I've got to accomplish more. Now, that's tempered by the fact that I know that's not the case. Like I, there's a part of me internally that just knows it's very grateful and grounded and happy to be where I'm at. Today happens to be one of those days where I just feel kind of tired and a little burned out. And I've had a bunch of different things from a bunch of different angles. Like I do these one-on-one coaching sessions with people and I find them very draining because I, I go into the person and I kind of read, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm not a therapist, but I'm kind of a triagist. It's mm-hmm. like what I can do is I can show you where your triggers I can show you where your pain lies, you know, in your body and and where it comes from, like as a child. And then you can go off to like an IFS worker, an SEE therapist or whatever, and then you can polish it up from there. But that's my gift is being able to look into you, see where your pain is, exactly where it is, and then give you the template that you can go and find a therapist that can work with you once a week. Because I don't work with people on a regular basis. I kind of go in there, I show them where their pain is, I show them how to deal with it, which is usually connecting your mind and your body and connecting your adult self with your child self. And once you do that, once you have the template, then you just have to practice. Yeah. Is that what that artwork is behind you, inner child? Kind of, yeah. Like it's from Burning Man. So it's like the, um, I can show you a little bit more about it. I don't know if you can see there. There's the book. So it's basically there. It's two adults that are kind of arguing with each other Mm. and the inner child in both of them wants to connect. Mm. So that's really, you know, I think that's kind of what life is about too, is like this, we want so badly to be connected, but depending on what connection meant to you as a child, like for me, my dad was schizophrenic. So he was, you know, kind and funny and thoughtful and generous, but then he would go manic or depressed or psychotic and I would lose that. So it's kind of like I learned that trusting love isn't safe because it can all get pulled away from you. Mm. So that was that's why I've been married three times. You know, it's one of those things where I think we get into this place where we don't trust love. If you have trauma as a child, I think you lose faith in the world. And when you lose faith in the world, the natural corollary of that is you start thinking that everything is up to you, mm. right? So everything is up to you. And you're also a child. So on one hand, you're eight years old, you start believing unconsciously, like this isn't something you say as an eight-year-old, everything's up to me. But I think when you lose faith in the 
in the safety of the world, you start looking for your own internal sense of safety. And this is where we develop these reactive coping mechanisms, overthinking, rumination, excessive exercise, all this kind of stuff comes in as a coping strategy, as a defensive accommodation to the trauma. So we are born kind of with this authentic self. And then depending on how much trauma we get, we develop into a reactive self, like a people pleaser or being aggressive. So And we learn those strategies and they work to some extent. Mm. But the problem is overthinking and rumination may have helped you as a child to kind of get past what your current trauma was at the time. But we keep riding that till the wheels come off. So we're 45 years old and we're still in our heads. We don't realize that we're adults anymore. We're not in that same powerless, helpless situation that we were in as a child. We are actually adults. You know, if you look at the way the amygdala works, the amygdala in the brain has no sense of time. So when we get triggered, we turn into an eight-year-old, mm. although we don't think we're an eight-year-old because we look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, well, clearly I'm not eight years old, but you are. Mm-hmm. And how you know confidence are you going to have in the world dealing with the trauma as an eight-year-old? That's what the poster is. So we get two of us, we get two people that both regress back into their own you know childhood wounds in a couple, and both of you turn eight years old, and both of you <laughs> are trying to get your eight-year-old needs met in a trauma format with the other person who's also traumatized, who's also regressed back to a place emotional reactivity. So then we get into these things where, you know, we fight, you know, or we withdraw or, you know, it shows up in your couple dynamics. Like it shows up in your relationship with your parents, relationship with your kids, but mostly in the relationship with your partner, that's how it shows up. And then we have two eight-year-olds kind of fighting with each other and it's not going to go well. Absolutely. Yeah. I will be very transparent. I reacted like an eight-year-old today when I was triggered. So I'm still a work in progress. I hung up the phone on someone I shouldn't have hung up the phone on, but it's a work in progress as mentioned. But it leads me to ask you this, you know, we're talking about how we come into this world as that pure, authentic self. And then of course, you know, as we go through life, we may experience big T's or little T's or whatever the case may be. Is it possible through all the work that we can do, internal family systems, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychedelics, et cetera, is it possible to get back to that purity, that authentic self at its core? Yeah, like almost like the tabula rasa, the blank slate again. I don't think so. Okay. Like I think those programs, when they're in there, they're always in there. Mm. You know, the amygdala never forgets. But we can start overwriting those programs. Mm. And I think that's where context comes into play. And if you look at the way the hippocampus and the amygdala react together, the hippocampus is kind of like, it's kind of like a caterpillar and the caterpillar's head is the amygdala. So the hippocampus has this ability to provide context in a situation. So if you're in a haunted house uh, for Halloween and someone jumps out or something jumps out at you, you'll get scared, but you know, it's like, this is just something that's fake. But if you're on an airplane and the airplane all of a sudden starts a, you know, a 200 foot dive, you're in it. And there's no amount of like the hippocampus trying to reassure you is going to make a lot of difference in the acute stages of that. So I think what we learn when we learn like different therapeutic processes and when we learn how to ground ourselves in our body is the hippocampus starts to learn context. Like we can still be safe in the face of something that reminds us of our childhood wound. Mm -hmm. So if I see someone say dealing with a parent who's either addicted or has mental illness, it will trigger me for sure because that was, and it will always likely trigger me. But now I realize the context and actually helping other people with this issue as well has helped me kind of get into this place that I can set a new context to that old wound. So the old wound will always be there. It's just I think what psychedelics do and what talk therapy to some extent does, but mostly somatic therapy does, is that it allows you a different context. Like my body still feels safe, even though I'm experiencing the same traumas as I did as a child. My body feels safe, so I must be okay. And I think that's what we lose in a lot of traditional therapies is we try and explain to ourselves, hey, you're still okay. Like you're you're in this room with your therapist, you're okay. But that cognitive explanation doesn't really reach that subcortical, that below the level of the thinking mind place where a lot of these traumas are stored. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about earlier, you know, being able to identify where someone's pain is. Now, what's your advice for someone to start to identify that for themselves? Like, how do we know? And I guess for clarity purposes, are you referring to where it's actually stored in the body physically or? That's the first place. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's the first place. So if someone comes to me and they say, you know, my mother was really demanding, you know, she Mm -hmm. was always, she was always on me about gaining weight or I wasn't, my grades weren't good enough or, you know, 
know, I had, there was some physical part of me that she kept picking on. Now, what I'll do with people is it's like, okay, now instead of going into the story of that, when you think of your mother criticizing your weight or your face or whatever, where do you sense that? Like, Mm. where does that come up in your body? And a lot of people, specifically women with narcissistic mothers or demanding mothers, often they'll feel it in their throat. It's like, oh, I feel this pressure in my throat. It's like, okay, well, where is it? Is it upper or lower? It's like, oh, it's down there. Is it superficial? Is it deep? It's kind of like, mm, it's in the middle. Is it hot or is it cold? It may not have a temperature. It's like, it feels kind of hot and kind of icy cold at the same time, which is curious how people describe it because it can be contradictory like that because the unconscious is very contradictory. Mm. We don't often have a really good way of explaining feeling. You know, we do our best with language, but language is the best thing that we have to explain feeling. And it kind of falls short in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, it's too bad we can't feel someone else's brain or feel someone else's feeling because then we would have a real sense of what's going on with them. But what I will do usually is I'll get them to localize it. They'll say, okay, it's in my throat. It's hot. It's red. It's kind of swollen. It feels like a tingling or whatever. And we'll really drill down into the sensation of it because I, I I do feel the more you drill down into the sensation of it, sometimes sensations, images, memories, behaviors will start coming out based on your focus on that sensation rather than going up into your brain and going, okay, what does this mean? Like, oh, well, you know, I my mother was demanding. I had an eating disorder when I was 15. You know, it's like, yeah, those are all like language. Those are all words. How? What's the feeling? Because mm-hmm. in our society, we don't really deal with feeling very much. We think that the mind, changing the mind and changing the way you think is going to change the way you feel. Now it does temporarily, but it doesn't permanently. And that's why cognitive therapies tend to wear off over time. Unless there's a somatic component to therapy, it doesn't tend to last. And people wind up a year later after $5,000 with a cognitive therapy, a year later, they're right back to the same anxious place they were before because there was no body, there was nothing in the body there to ground it. Yeah. So I'm curious if someone comes to you and you know, you're trying to identify where their pain is and you ask them where they feel it when they're talking about their trauma or what they've experienced and they say, hey, Dr. Russ, like, I don't feel anything. Like, is it possible that it's suppressed so far down that there's just no feeling at all? Totally. Yeah. And I see that quite frequently too. So usually at that point, we might do a few physiological sighs, you know, two quick sniffs in and then a long, slow exhale. And Mm. so I find that people almost always can feel it. They're just so guarded that they don't want to. And I don't blame them. And I say, you know, you know, specifically, this may be too much for you. So if it is too intense, let's back off. Let's go into some, some other place. So it's really this sort of titration, sort of being able to kind of guide someone through because they don't want to actually feel that pain. Because in some people, if you've had severe emotional, physical, sexual abuse, you don't want to go into that pain. And it's like, can I just get you to dip your toe into the idea that it might be in your body? Mm. And sometimes it'll sort of, it'll come up and they're like, oh, okay, maybe I feel this, you know, tingling in my trachea. That's what I had this person the other day. said, this tingling in my trachea. It's like, can we stay with that? Or is that too much? It's like, "Mm, it's kind of heavy, but we can stay with it. And then over the next five minutes or so, it became a pressure and it became cold. So it's just like if you go in there, if you allow them to sort of dip their toe in the trauma and dip their toe in the sensation of it, often if if they can stay with it, and some people can't, but if they can stay with it, it will start expanding. They will start getting more descriptors of that. And then often different sensations, memories, images, and that sort of stuff will be associated with that sensation. And then I really feel like we're getting at the root cause of where their anxiety, depression, eating disorder, personality disorder sits, because that's the manifestation of it in the body. Mm. And if you look at neuroscience, if you look at the insular cortex in the brain, the part of the brain called the insula that sits deep, deep in the brain, it's kind of like the part of the brain that mediates the mind to the body and the body to the mind. So it's kind of like this way station. And my personal theory is that when we're traumatized as children, that insula, specifically the anterior part of the insula that's associated with the sensation in the body, forms a emotional signature of that pain. And our body feels exactly the same way now now as it did when we were 5, 8, 10, 12 years old and we're walking home hoping that our mother's not going to be hammered drunk when we get home. Mm. It's the same feeling in the body. And if it's the same feeling in the body, the mind, which is a compulsive meaning-making, make-sense machine, will make sense of that alarm by creating these alarming stories. And then we believe the alarming stories, which of course creates more alarm in the body, which creates more alarming stories. And on top of that, I'm giving you a tremendous amount of information in a short period of time here. I'll put this in too much. But what happens is when we go 
one of survival mode in our body is we shut off our prefrontal cortex, which is the kind of the rational executive functioning part of our brain. So not only do we make more worries because we're in threat, physiology, we're in survival physiology, but we lose the part of the brain that would actually critically appraise those worries as unlikely to happen. Mm. So A, we make more worries and B, we believe them. So it becomes this snowball. Yeah. And that's when it really starts to crush people. Yeah. You were giving us an example of, you know, someone that may have experienced a narcissistic parent per se. And I'm just curious if we were to do like a body scan together Are there commonalities for where emotions live in the body? Like does anger, yeah, does like, does anger like live in the hips or the back? Or I'm just curious, like, are there commonalities in that regard? There are some body workers that kind of believe that. I think it becomes a confirmation bias though. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you feel like, oh, anger is held in the back and then you talk to people and you find that anger is held in the back, then you create this thing that anger must be held in the back. And I think that's kind of, you know, it's a bit too subjective. But I do find that a lot of this stress, pain, trauma gets held in the midline of the body. Like I rarely see people say, oh, it's in my right bicep. Mm you know, or it's in my left knee. It's almost always between the chin and the pubic bone, like in the center of the body. And if you look at the brain structure, anterior cingulate, posterior cingulate, just parts of the brain that are devoted to physical sensation, that's often where they will reflect in the body. So midline brain structures will often reflect to midline body structures. And I think that's why we feel, you know, pain in the heart when we get broken up on, Mm. you know, when we have or experience a breakup or our, our pet dies or whatever, we feel an actual pain in our heart. And I think if we look at the way the structures are are formed, like if you look at the posterior cingulate in particular, which is part of the default mode network in the brain, they think that maybe the posterior cingulate may be associated with a lot of self-referential thought. So shame, blame, judgment of yourself may be held kind of around this posterior cingulate area, which reflects to the central part of our body. So when we feel ashamed, we'll often feel it in the center part of our body. Mm. When we feel like we're being blamed for something, it's often refers to the center part of our body. So that's a commonality that I will often see is that I don't see often, you know, I feel it in my right thigh or I feel it in my left elbow. It's usually along the center of the body somewhere. And almost always it's kind of more chest, you know, and throat. Chest and throat are probably the biggest places that I see alarm in people. Gut too, but chest and throat are probably the number one and two. Yeah. Dr. Russ, one thing that is confusing to me is like, if you cut my body open right now, you cut my arm open, you'll be able to see the muscle. You'll be able to see the bone, the whatever else is a part of the anatomy. I'm not by any means a doctor. I went to school for business. You know, you'll be able to see those aspects, but emotion you can't see. So what confuses me is like, what is actually stored to me? Like, I want to answer my own question and say the energy of that emotion. But again, energy isn't something that you can remove and like hold in your hand. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's multiple places in the brain. If you look at the way the brain processes physical pain, a lot of those same areas are the places that process emotional pain. Mm. So it's a multifaceted thing. You know, you look at the amygdala, hippocampus, pons, medulla, like different parts of the brainstem. There's all these parts that translate emotion on some level. And then you get what's a person's experience. Like if you are a child and you're constantly screamed at by your father, that is going to create a different pattern in you than someone that said had a loving, caring environment with their parents. So it's really fascinating to see because they've searched for years, like the source of fear and like they'll, they'll say, oh, it's the amygdala. It's like, well, no, the amygdala actually has sources of pleasure in it as well. So it's really, it's not, you can't just sort of say this area of the brain is associated with this emotion. Like you could with Broca's area, like area 44 for speech. You know, if people have a a stroke in Broca's area, they have difficulty expressing speech. So we can see that and we can go, okay, this is what happened. But we don't have that same kind of topographical, that ability to sort of say, this is where fear is. Mm -hmm. This is where anger is. It just, just doesn't occur. Yeah. It's so interesting to me having this conversation. I'm sitting here in awe and I'm just like, is this a, to me, it's complex, but is it as complex as like a normal listener like myself to this or is it simpler? Well, I think it's just, you know, find the emotion in your body. Mm. You know, when you're triggered, you know, if you were, say you were raised by a parent who, or parents who weren't around, Mm. you were a latchkey kid. So you finished school, you came home and your parents didn't get home till six o'clock. That loneliness that you felt waiting for your 
your parents to come home? Like, where do you feel that in your body? Mm. You know, these are the things that I talk to people about is like, we're such a, a neck up society. And I say to people, like, they say, well, what's the best treatment for anxiety? It's like, well, get into your body, get out of your head. Because, you know, anxiety by definition is this, you know, excess thinking, rumination. But your brain tells you that, oh, if you're scared, you can think your way out of it. But you can't. You just make it worse mm. by thinking your way, you know. So it's learning to, when you're feeling anxious, like, okay, can I just get out of my head for a second and say, what's the sensation going on in my body right now when I feel anxiety in my mind? You know, is it a pressure? Is it a pain? You know, for me, it's in my solar plexus. It's purple. It's sharp. It presses up into my heart, into my back. It's really getting to know that source of pain. And here's the kicker on top of all of this stuff that we've talked about already is that I believe that that representation of anxiety in my system, in my solar plexus, that fish-shaped purple sensation is my younger self. Mm. That is the younger version of me. So our alarm is the younger version of ourself, modulated again by the insula. So if we can put our hand over it, if we can breathe into it, if we can kind of show that pain that we will see it, hear it, love it, and protect it, then we can kind of heal from it. But unfortunately, the way we're wired as human beings is that we avoid pain. Mm. So if we have that pain, and it took me like a trip on LSD to actually see this for myself. So it wasn't like I, I was able to kind of find this out empirically or through medicine or something like that. But it's finding this pain and realizing that, hey, that is your younger self. That is the child in you asking to be seen, heard, loved, and protected now in a way that they didn't get back then. Yeah. But the natural response is, that we separate from it. Mm. Because I believe what anxiety is is its core, at its core, is a, a mind-body separation and a separation of our adult self from our child self. So the adult in us doesn't want to go back to the child because that's where the child experienced all this sort of abandonment, the bullying, the pain. And the child looks at the adult in us like, help me, help me, help me. And the adult's like, no, I can't. So the child doesn't trust the adult, the adult doesn't trust mm. the child. And as we get older, you know, our old traumas just continue us to put a crowbar between that ability to connect with each other. And that's what I believe creates alarm. And it's the alarm in our body that actually creates the anxiety of the mind. Yeah. On the topic of anxiety, I'm really curious what your advice would be from a mindset perspective to someone that may view themselves differently for their mental health struggles. Maybe they're diagnosed with a disordered anxiety or experiencing depression. How do we not view ourselves differently or like less than for experiencing that? Yeah, another great question. Because there is a lot of shame, blame, that what I call jabs. There is like judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame of ourselves. Because mm. I think when we're younger and we experience a trauma that's too much for us to bear and our parents don't help us metabolize it, it does get stored in our body. It does get pushed down and the body keeps the score. The body maintains that place. And your anxiety is basically your nervous system acting normally to a trauma that it couldn't process because it didn't have those adult figures to help you metabolize the pain at the time. Mm. So, you know, energy can't be, you know, created nor destroyed and that energy has got to go somewhere. So it winds up getting stored in your body. In my book, Anxiety Rx, I call it background alarm. And that background alarm kind of runs your mind. And in this process called interoception, the mind is always reading the body. And if you've got an old wound in there that just keeps you know, getting triggered, it's going to affect your mind. Mm. And it's going to cause your mind to become hypervigilant and worried. Because when you're a child, that's the only place you can go is your mind. You don't have power to do it any other way. So that self, you know, you're continuing to judge, abandon, blame and shame yourself if you continue on that program of saying I'm somehow defective or whatever. Because I felt like that too when I had anxiety and, and you go to all these doctors and, you know, you spend thousands of dollars on therapy and all this kind of stuff. And you think I am just broken. Mm. Like I can't be healed. And it's because traditional therapy misses the mark. They think you can fix a anxiety, a thinking problem with more thinking mm. and you can't. It doesn't work that way. You need to ground yourself in your body. My wife is a somatic trauma therapist. She says this. She says, you need to ground people in their body first. And then all the, the cognitive stuff that they understand about their trauma and how they deal with it has a place to ground itself. Because if you just try and fix the mind with the mind, the mind is too, it's like air. In, in Ayurvedic medicine, they call it vata. It's air. There's nothing there that actually sticks and holds and allows you to feel safe in that. Whereas if you start grounding in your body and you start creating a safe place in your body, then a lot of this therapy has a place to ground so that the next time you run into this same situation, 
information, and you will over and over again, you go, oh, you know what? Last time I did this, I was actually safe in my body. Even though my mind was going nuts, I was actually safe in my body and I can do that again. And then it's just practice. Yeah. Why does anxiety seem to come out of nowhere in people's lives? Like, I'll give you an example. Like, I can only speak for myself. Like, I don't think I ever experienced quote unquote anxiety until maybe college. You know, before then, I come from, you know, a background with divorced parents. I acted out to get my mother's attention because she neglected me. You know, like I can go down the list of things that I feel like were either big or little T traumas in my life, but I never felt anxious until let's call it college. And I'm like, wait, like what changed? Like, where did this come from? You know, a lot of people can maintain their anxiety until they go away to college. Mm. Like I get that a lot because you're outside of your familiar environment, your parents, whether or not they were supportive or not. But when we get outside of that environment, and this is what I see with a lot of our children now, because we don't expose our children to a whole lot of negative emotion or they get exposed to it and immediately they go to their phones. Mm. So there's, they never really learn how to deal with boredom, how to deal with envy, how to deal with disappointment. Because as soon as they feel negative emotion, they go to their phone. But that stops working when they go off to college. So uh, we're seeing it younger and younger and younger now with kids. But this is, I think, part of the anxiety is that our support systems are gone. So often people will say, and I hear this all the time, I wasn't anxious until my car accident at 24. Mm. I didn't feel it. Now, you may have been anxious before that, but it sort of flew under the radar. And COVID did this to a lot of people because COVID pushed people out of their ability to feel secure within themselves. Mm. And that really pushed people because one of my favorite sayings from my one of my favorite people is Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who is a, my sort of mentor in developmental psychology. And he said, all anxiety is separation anxiety. It's really true. And I add on to that. And it's mostly separation from yourself. So when you feel separate from yourself, and you can't connect with yourself through your body, through whatever, you're going to start feeling anxious. So I would suggest that perhaps your divorce parents affected you much more than you you know, were aware of. And then all of a sudden something happened that sort of pushed you over the edge. You were able to tread water up until that point and then something happens. And I see that with people all the time. They will say to me, I was fine until I had a car accident. I was fine until I got divorced. I was fine until my dog died. And it's not that. It's like you were treading water. You were, you know, you had it under there, but you were able to cope. Mm. But then once once that little thing tipped you over the edge, then the waterfall started. Yeah. So in regards to that definition of anxiety or the quote on anxiety, I'm curious, what would be your top three things to start getting connected to self or to at least start putting ourselves back in alignment, whether that be with our inner child and our adult self or whatever it would take? Yeah. The first thing is when you feel anxious, or I like to say alarmed, when you feel alarmed, go into your body, get out of your head. Mm. It's easier said than done, but it's a practice that will save your life without a doubt. So the first thing is move out of your head and into your body, even if your body hurts, because it will. Mm. You know, the alarm that's stored in there is not a pleasant feeling, but it's being able to metabolize it and stay with it. And I think that's a lot of it is that we don't stay with the pain that's in our body. We'd much rather go up in our heads, which is what we did as children, which helped. But we're not children anymore. We actually have a lot more agency in our lives than that. The next thing I tell people is to tell yourself, I'm safe in this moment, or ask yourself, am I safe in this moment? I know I'm freaked out about my driver's test coming up. I know I'm freaked out about my dentist or my tax bill or you know going to see my mother who's sick or whatever. But in this moment, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, just ask yourself, am I safe in this moment? Because so often those of us with anxiety are used to living in this milieu of constant fear, although we're not aware of it, but we create this state of constant hypervigilance. And when we actually draw our attention to the moment that we're in, and that we are safe, it can be a revelation for some people because we're so used to, anxious people are so used to just keeping this sort of low grade level of anxiety going all the time because it's familiar to us. It was familiar to our childhood. So what's familiar to us in childhood will automatically gravitate to and reproduce in our adulthood. Freud called it the repetition compulsion. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is just realizing that there's some faith, have some faith in the world because so often anxious people become victims and victims by definition don't have any faith because you're a victim. So that victim mentality just, it creates all this neurochemistry and physical chemistry in that it creates norepinephrine in your brain, which activates your brain. It creates cortisol in your system through the hypothalamic pituitary axis. And it just creates these stress hormones 
in our system. Victim mentality creates stress hormones in our system. And then those things create all sorts of things like interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, C-reactive protein. These are the things that create inflammation in the body. So this is why people get autoimmune disease that have childhood trauma Mm. because it creates these things. So it's the ability to kind of have faith in the world. And you know, you've made it so far. You've probably been through some pretty horrible times, but you're here. So it's focusing on the fact that there is something greater than you. And I don't necessarily mean God or whatever you want to call it, but I think there is a consciousness, there is an order to the universe that keeps most of us safe most of the time. Now, you know, if you watch the news, of course, you're going to have this idea that the world is this horribly unsafe place. And for some people, it is right now, especially. But in general, it's a pretty safe place. Anxious people develop this pattern that they have to stay vigilant and they have to stay afraid in order to stay safe, which is a horrible program to run. I ran it for years. Just understanding that there is, you can have faith. Mm. You can just have faith in something else, other something other than you. Because when we start believing that everything's up to us, and this happens when we're 5, 8, 12 years old, we regress to a 5, 8, 12-year-old when we have that feeling of anxiety. And, you know, being an 8-year-old dealing with a relationship breakup or the death of your dog or whatever is going to be devastating. But we have to realize that we're not children anymore. We actually have a lot more agency in the world. And we can choose to have faith as opposed to just go with this reactive victim mentality. So those those are rather long kind of explanations of the three things that I would tell everybody as far as anxiety goes. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of it. And I appreciate that breakdown. I maybe should have asked this question first, but let's ask it now. What do you think are the top three leading factors to the increase of in anxiety in our society and culture now? Like what is causing that? I could assume that, you know, you'll probably throw in the fact that a lot of us run away from our emotions and our pain and our traumas, but I'm curious to know what you think. Well, I think the bottom line is that we're treating each other as transactions rather than real people Mm. now. So, and this is very big in the States, you know, you're not good for your personhood. Mm. You're good because you can provide me with a sense of income. You know, I can sell you something. You know, now this is very kind of, but it's unconscious. I think there is this sense the currency of humanness is dropping. Mm. So we don't have that same sense of connectedness. You know, the rules, I had this joke that I used to tell on stage as a stand up comic when I would say, you know, I'm going to stop stopping at red lights because I think red lights are just a sign of the patriarchy. And they slow me down. Like, I don't, I, I, I need to get across town. And who are these red lights to stop me from getting where I'm going? Now we need, we need order. Like we need order. Like the individual is important. Absolutely. But we need order. And we're losing that order to everyone's own desire to be themselves, to exert their own authority on the society. And if everybody has their own traffic rules just like they have their own rules about, you know, sexuality, who can get married, all this kind of stuff, the society is going to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. And it is disintegrating on some level. And when we feel separate from each other, anxiety just starts to fill up our psyches. And then when we get anxious, we start doubling down on our own beliefs. So the confirmation bias comes up. So the tribalism comes up. It's like, well, those people must be causing my problems. Like the the Republicans and the Democrats in the States, like it's just, I'm Canadian. So I look at this as a big circus and uh, maybe you guys do too. But it is one of those things where the separation is so great now. And the fact that people can just blatantly lie and just stick and double down and triple down on the lie when everyone knows, most people know anyway, that it's a complete lie. Again, it drops our human currency. It drops the dignity that we have as human beings, even if that dignity is an illusion, right? But that illusion kept us together. And we do need rules and we do need to have this sense that we're all important and we need to live with each other. But within that, we have to have rules. We have to have certain, like the traffic lights, we have to have certain rules. Otherwise, society descends into chaos. And the farther it descends into chaos, the more the human currency drops and the more we dehumanize other people, the more we start wars and conflicts and violence. And it just, the society unravels, which of course, by its definition is going to create a lot of anxiety. Now that was probably a heavier definition than you expected, but that's kind of what I've been thinking about lately. Well, it makes sense. And it also goes back to your mentor's quote on what anxiety is, right? I, I feel like that's in alignment very much so. Yeah. I'm curious, what's a question you wish more people would ask you? I think people are starting to now. So it's one of those things that I used to sort of lament. I really understand now. It's like, why do you think that anxiety is held in the body? Mm. Because there is this story that I kind of love, and I don't know if it's true. It's kind of a parable that said that when, you know, when the European ships came to North America and the Native Americans saw these ships, they couldn't recognize the ships. 
they would say stuff like the water looked funny, like the water looked like it was caved out. They actually couldn't because they'd never seen ships this size before. So it's kind of like the same thing is that when I adopt this theory as a medical doctor and a neuroscientist, that anxiety has much more to do with old energy stored in the body than the thoughts of the mind, that goes 180 degrees against what conventional psychology and psychiatry think, which is change your thoughts, change your anxiety. Mm -hmm. I don't happen to believe that. So people are starting to ask me more. It's like, why do you think that anxiety is stored in the body? And that's why I talk about the anterior insula. I try to give people a very neuroscientific response response rather than going, oh, I feel that we need to understand our bodies and our minds and everything is connected and we're mind, body and spirit, which is all true. And I can go into that sort of stuff. I have a real woo-woo flaky side, but I also have a very strong grounding in science. And I find that if you can explain sort of ethereal things in scientific terms, people start giving it more credibility and they can actually start seeing the ships that I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I've been doing, I only have you for a few more minutes here. And one thing that I've been doing on the way out of these interviews is asking a question to a past guest to ask our current guest, which is you. So this question comes from an individual that had no clue who the next guest was going to be. And she had asked you, how were the people or who were the people you would choose to have around you if you had to do it all over again? I don't know if I would change a lot. Okay. Because I think, you know, having my schizophrenic father, having my, I don't want to say distant mother. I mean, she's, you know, she's Scottish and they, you know, the Scottish reserve, there isn't a whole lot of I love yous. There's not a whole lot of hugs, but there is this sense that, you know, she was really, she cared for me, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, in a perfect world, I would, I would have wanted parents who were more connected mm -hmm. and loving and could could see my sensitive nature and could see me for me as opposed to see me as a vehicle to help them. And I think so often that happens is that people have kids to fulfill their own desires. And there's a wonderful saying that says the greatest challenge a child can bear is the unlived life of a parent. So I don't know if I would change anything because now if you would have asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said I would have liked to not have my dad. Like, but now I'm kind of realizing that, you know, it's all part of it. I think that we're, everything is consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all made of a little fabric of this consciousness. And we're all made a little different. You know, some of us have kidney disease. Some of us have an abusive parent. Some of us get in a major car accident. Some of us are quadriplegic. Consciousness has a way of trying to experience itself. Mm -hmm. And I think it experiences itself through us because it can't experience itself as it is because it is everything. I don't know if that makes sense. So it makes us all a little bit different and it gives us all these different challenges. Some people have more overt challenges than others. And I think that I don't think I would change anything now because it's actually allowed me to help myself and help so many other people. So I can really embrace what I didn't have back then and give it to myself now. Mm -hmm. Easier said than done. I still have days where I, have, I judge, abandon, blame and shame myself. But in general, you know, I have this sense of myself now that that I'm okay, I'm good, you know, and good things are coming to me and they do. And again, that all comes back to just adopting a sense of faith in the world. So I don't think I would change anything. Okay, so let me ask you this question. You make it sound like Dr. Russ of 10 years ago is a different person. Uh, and I'm sure, oh, yeah, he was. I'm sure you've grown, yeah. you've obviously evolved. We all, you know, we're all growing whether we like it or not. Sure. You're sitting across from Dr. Russ of 10 years ago. What's the piece of advice you're giving him? Trust yourself. Okay. You know, trust yourself. Stop looking outside of you for the love, attention, support that you need to start taking from yourself. Mm. You're not a victim. You're not a victim. And I think 10 years ago, I did feel like a victim for sure. So it's like being able to, you know, as cliche, you know, love yourself, of course, but it's beyond that. It's see yourself as a part of consciousness. You know, you're, you had your dad, you had your mom, you had your, your issues, not because it was personal to you, but it's just what consciousness put into you that was to be your life. And I'm a bit of a determinist that way. I'm a bit like your life is kind of predetermined, you know, your death is kind of predetermined, not hardcore, but there is a sense in me that, you know, when I was a physician, I would see people that would, you know, be healthy and run and then they would drop dead at 48. And I would see people that would drink themselves in a, like puddles and smoke and live to like 89, you know, so. So it's kind of like I have this sort of deterministic thing that um, I think much of our life is pre-programmed. And I think when we develop the awareness that we can see that these are patterns, there's a railroad that our life is going to go on. Now, you know, you can branch out of that railroad, but if the railroad in Great Britain, you're not going to get off Great Britain. 
you know, but you can, you know, go to places maybe in Great Britain that you'd like to go to rather than places that you're not. I don't know if that's making sense, but I think there really is this sense of determinism in our lives. And I think we believe in this sense of free will, like we can do anything. And I don't know if that's actually true. I think it's just creating the sense of awareness that you have a lot more of an overview of your life than what you believe that you do. And a lot of your thoughts aren't you. They're basically just a reactive part of you that formed at a, usually because of trauma. Yeah. I'm curious to learn if you felt like you weren't trusting yourself 10 plus years ago because yeah. you were taught not to trust yourself or if it was something else. I think I just had so much pain and I drove myself so hard like becoming a physician and, and a stand-up comedian and, and to some extent a writer and that kind of thing. I think I forced myself into these things that became lucrative for me financially, maybe not stand-up, but medicine certainly was, that wasn't really me. You know, it was kind of like I was grasping at things and I, I sublimated that energy. I took that negative energy and I created something with it. But in creating something, I was always kind of looking for external validation rather than giving the, the validation to myself. And I think it's a combination. I don't think there, there's these things I see on Instagram. It's like, if you give everything to yourself, you'll never lack for anything. I do think we need other people. Like we do, we are wired to need other people. The idea of giving it to yourself is so important, but you have to have a model of that too. And this comes back to childhood. If you had a parent that really showed you that you were loved for who you were, then you have that internal sense that that's the case. If you don't have that, and I don't think most of us do have that, I think we continually search for it outside in money and business and in, you know, external validations of success. And then when we get those successes, we're still not happy because it's like that wasn't the ultimate reason. You know, we tell ourselves that we get up to the top of Mount Everest that at the top, we're going to feel amazing, which you do for about two days. But then after that, you know, you're back to the old, no matter where you go, there you are. Like wait, the old Wayne Dyer thing. It's like, you know, if you need it from the outside, if you want it from the outside, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you need it from the outside, there is something wrong with that. That makes a lot of sense. And I could definitely resonate with that because uh, I've sought it on the outside for many, many years of my life. So me too. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. part of it to an extent. It goes back to like what you were saying, how you wouldn't change it. I mean, I very much so believe in divine plans and timing and all of that stuff as well. And it's like, hey, this was my life for a reason. You know, you got to you got to yeah. run with it. You got to run with it. So totally. I'm going to ask you two more questions. I'm going to try and squeeze these out of you here. Okay. This question was asked to me by Dr. Michael Gervais. And I said, I'm going to ask it to every other guest that ever comes on okay. this show. Okay. The question is, how would my life be different if I knew what you know? I think he would have a lot more awareness what's hidden from you, specifically emotionally. Mm -hmm. You know, going into your body, feeling safe, even though your body is alarmed, teaching yourself that, yeah, there are negative things that happen to us. And if you ground yourself first, specifically in your body, things can't, they can't hurt you. Mm -hmm. You know, they can challenge you for sure. But the hurt comes from what you do to yourself. It's like the old saying with the Buddha, right? It's like pain in this life is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. So we're all going to experience pain, you know, divorce, death of our parent or death of our dog, whatever. But it's what we do to ourselves after that pain. Buddha calls the second arrow. That's optional. Yeah. And it's just like, I help people see that a lot of their suffering is optional. Mm, I love that. For clarity, I probably should have asked this a little bit earlier, but when you say get into your body, are you talking about turning to your breath? Are you talking about movement? What is it exactly? You know, it's personal to everybody. Like sometimes when I'll say get into your body, some people will get a physical sensation. It's like, oh, I just feel this pressure in my chest or my throat or whatever. I'm just going to go that. Some people, it is this sense of like, I'll fill up my chest. I'll fill up my lungs. Mm. Some people, it's more muscular. I just feel like I'm in my shoulders. I mean, I remember when I wasn't working out for a long time, like over COVID, it just felt like my my arms were just all over the yeah. place. And then I started working out again and it felt like my muscles all sort of joined together as a big unit again. It was a, a palpable sensation. So I think it's different for different people, but I think it's really important. And, you know, and sometimes in, in somatic therapies, we sort of say, you know, what's in your smell system right now? Like, what do you smell? Like, what do you see? There's that, you know, the five things you can taste, five things you can, all this sort of stuff, which, you know, helpful for some people. I don't use it very much, but it's really like, okay, what's in your visual system right mm. now? What can you hear? What can you smell? What can you touch? What can you taste? Like what brings you into your body and how do you know you're in your body? And the paradox there is you can only describe someone how you feel in your body 
with words mm-hmm. because and as soon as you bring something into words it loses its meaning so and I, I you know I kind of felt that on psychedelics too like so much of what we explain to ourselves and others isn't really what we're actually feeling it's our interpretation or our perception of what we're feeling but it's not really what the ultimate source of that is and so often those self-explanations come from our childhoods and come from habit and come from repetition and they're not real so if we can actually allow ourselves to go very, very deep into the sensation, like drill down. Is it superficial? Is it deep? Is it hot or is it cold? You know, really drill down as deep as you can into sensation. And I, the little mantra that I use is sensation without explanation. And I say that to myself every day, sensation without explanation. Like when I'm going through a difficult time with something, it's like stay in your body, stay with sensation. Notice the compulsion that your mind is going to want to grab and explain this and make you feel better and make you and reassure you. And it's like, that's not what you need. You need to feel it. You need to process it and allow it to be there. Because as soon as you go into your head, you've lost it. That sounds like acceptance too. Yeah. And not only acceptance too, it's actually embracing the pain. Mm. You know, that's the thing. When you actually actually embrace the pain in the periaqueductal brain of your brainstem, you start creating your brain's natural morphine. Mm. When you go, like if you see somebody across the room and you want to go talk to them, you can go two ways. You can go, oh, they're too attractive for me. Like I'm never going to, you can go into victim mentality, do that. Your brain will start secreting norepinephrine and your body starts creating cortisol, which reaffirms to you, no, that person is out of reach. That's too scary. I'm not going to do it. Or you can start walking towards that person. Your periaqueductal gray will start creating your own brain's morphine to support you. You'll also secrete dopamine because you feel like you're on the right track and that will support you. So what, whatever decision you make and whatever behavior you follow, your brain will support you. Your brain will support you in being a victim and your brain will support you in actually going towards what you want. I love that. One last question for you in the last few minutes here. Sure. Dr. Russ lives to whatever year he wants to live to. He, yep. he does all he wants to do. He signs on the book publisher and you know it goes from 60,000 to 60 million copies sold. Like Whatever it is you want to do is accomplished in this lifetime, but you could only be right. remembered for one piece of advice. Meaning if I walk past your tombstone, that's the piece of advice that's etched into it. What advice is that? Yeah. Stay in your body, get out of your head. Stay in your body and get out of your head. I love it. Get out of your head. I love it. I love it. Dr. Russ, this has been incredible. Expressing gratitude for this. I mean, I could talk to you the rest of the night, but seriously, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks so Matt. I'm sure we'll do this again. You have just completed an all-new episode of the Decoding Success podcast featuring Dr. Russ Kennedy as we dive into healing anxiety. Before anything else, reminding you that you chose this for a reason. You chose this podcast. You chose this episode. You chose this moment for a reason. A reason that may be because you needed this information. You needed some mindset shifts. You needed hope. And reminding you that you may have been here to help someone else. To share this with someone that may be struggling maybe even struggling silently. So embrace this moment and share it with those you love on social media or elsewhere. Of course, if you opt to share it on social, make sure that you tag Dr. Russ and myself so we can say thank you. As always, you're going to be able to connect with Dr. Russ through the show notes of this episode. You're going to be able to find his socials, his book, his website, his programs, and all else as always in the show notes of this episode. Hey, if you choose to share this on social, make sure that you let him know that you heard him here on Decoding Success. Once again, reminding you, every week, we never skip a beat. You best believe there is a new episode in the works dropping next Wednesday, and we want you to join us. Until then, everyone, be blessed. Peace.